Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're talking to Chris Goddard, a software engineer turned CTO, working in an industry that's fast-moving and ever-changing, using the wealth of data to turn a healthy profit. So let's not delay, let's get Chris, our guest, into the space to share his enlightening stories and knowledge. Welcome, Chris. Welcome to CTO Confessions Podcast. Hi, TC. Nice to be here. Brilliant. So tell the audience who you are and what you do and who you work for. So, yeah, my name is uh, Chris Goddard. I'm currently the Chief Technology Officer for G Research. We're a a software company working in in London. We do sort of, I guess, research and and algorithmic software development for the uh, financial markets to uh, basically predict the future as best we can. And then uh, we deploy that for uh, for a single customer that we have, which is a quant hedge fund. So we're kind of lots of technical staff, lots of scientific staff. And my role there is, I guess, to try and look at what's happening in the wider technology world, what's happening internally, and help as part of the management team to map out the future, map out what we think we should be doing next. Excellent. And we're going to drill down into that a little bit more because I'm really interested in what kind of G Research do and the, and the areas you work in. Um, but before we do that, I'm really interested in how you got to where you are now. What's your journey been like? Because I've been looking at your kind of LinkedIn and you're obviously a, a software engineer like myself and you've kind of worked your way up to, to where you are. What's that been like? What's that journey like? Yeah, I guess it's been uh, it's been interesting the whole way just because, as, as you well know, in this industry, it's just constant change. There's always something to be learning so i guess the the kind of the reality is the whole thing is a learning journey it is i guess for pretty much anybody in, in tech especially these days but i started as a teenager programming my dad had a he was he was in technology luckily for me and he went to america and brought an apple 2 plus back and said here you go here's a computer here's a book you could learn to program yeah. <laughs> yeah and um there wasn't much else to do in those days so it didn't have any Fortnite or um tiktok to sit and play on so just started learning how to program and, and fell in love with it Excellent. And then I spent my teenage years, I guess, doing a variety of jobs, but realized that I could get paid for writing software, which was uh, pretty cool, a lot better than stacking shelves in the, in the local supermarket. Um, so I did that and then went to university, studied computer science, which felt like the kind of necessary tick in the box mm. to, to go and do the academics or the theoretical end of it. And then, yeah, just started work, actually graduated and joined what was then a quant hedge fund, a very early one in, in a company called DE Shaw and Company, who were just sort of opening up a London office. Stayed there for a few years, then went traveling, much to the upset of my um, my parents who said, why why are you giving up that great job? And I, well, because I can afford to now. So went traveling, came back, joined a startup where I kind of joined as the sort of infrastructure lead, I guess, because I'd moved more into the infrastructure side when I was first at DE Shaw. And then, um, realized that the plan for for growing the startup didn't really have a valid sort of approach to what the software was going to be either so that allowed me to in effect move into a cto role then which was kind of lucky for me um defining the technology strategy getting the offshore development team 
spun up and sort of figuring out how we were actually going to design this overall platform, which we called it an ASP, an application service provider, which I guess if you look at it now, you'd say it was in the cloud mm. um, because we were moving away from installing software on people's premises and just running it all centrally. And you just didn't have AWS in those days to do it or GCP. So we ran it in our own data center and got customers to connect. Wow. Did that for a few years. That that was a success as a business, but it was going to take a long time to, I guess, grow it and grow the customer base. And I knew some people who'd moved to the company I'm now at to sort of start the quant hedge fund and, and to grow it. And they said to me, hey, you need to come and join us over here because we've got this challenge of building out this machine that we need to build to do automated trading and automated prediction. And that was 2003. And through various name changes and expansions, the company's gone from about 30 people when I joined to around a thousand now. Wow. Um, and yeah, we've we've grown, we've been successful, done lots of fun stuff. Every few years, the, the role for me has changed, either sort of moving from running infrastructure to running a few software teams, to running all of software, to um, running none of software because now I'm in a more strategic role. So it's been, yeah. it's been a journey. And I guess every few years has been some new challenge that's kept it interesting. So even though I've been at the same company for 18 years, it feels like I've had five different jobs there, which I guess Ooh. is the thing that keeps it interesting. And, and that shift from uh, kind of implementation uh, and delivering, you know, bits of software or, or, or kind of managing people that are going to do and going to the strategic and looking ahead. You know, we've, we kind of joked before on CTO Confessions that, you know, being in this kind of position, uh, a tech leader in this kind of position, you have to be like a kind of time lord. You know, you're having to look back at what's happened in the past and look at what's happening now and also the path ahead. What that kind of shift to being more strategic was that kind of quite a natural move for you or was it quite quite a shift i mean i guess it like the, the hardest thing for somebody like me who i guess was a techie and knew how things worked and so therefore you can go right into the detail was to let go of the detail of what was happening with all of the projects and all of the teams i mean there's still initiatives that i really care about things that um are the new things we're trying to do or the big changes we're trying to make mm. but it took a while to kind of let go, but actually after a while, it's kind of nice to realize you're not necessarily the one who's on the, the red flashing dot on the uh, on the dashboard saying this program's late or this project's late because right. it's sort of more, I guess I'm more in the sort of like, what should we be doing and how should it tie together in future space mode rather than in the delivery track. Yeah. But it was hard to, it was hard to let go of stuff. And also you look at things now and if you've been somewhere for a long time, you can't blame somebody else for the mistakes because you were the person who was in <laughs> yeah. charge of something when it happened. Yeah. And I think that probably helps as a tech leader if you have to leave the ego somewhat behind because you're living with your own mistakes. And yeah. so some people sort of do this thing where they move every two or three years, I think, and just disavow what mm. they've done and someone else comes in and writes a new strategy. But I think it's more meaningful and, and sort of you get a better understanding of what you've done and how you could have done better if you have to live with something for a longer time. And, and with G Research and coming to G Research, what's what's the thing, what's the problem that it's solving in the market? Okay, so in effect, um, G Research was founded on the principle that in pretty much any sphere of business, as technologies come to, to be sort of, I guess, applied to that, that business line, there's been a way to improve the outcome, whether you've automated something or you've scaled it. So in effect, what we try to do is to take what was a human decision-making process of, of making investments um, where a human could potentially cover 30, maybe 40, 50 stocks maximum yeah. as something they were expert in, is to say, well, can we use maths and statistics and 
um, all sorts of kind of like modeling techniques to kind of predict future prices and then build an al algorithmic sort of version of a human trader so that you can scale to hundreds or thousands of instruments rather than and you don't get bored and you don't get emotional so what we did is we started in 2001 to try and prove you could do that um, it took five or six years to really get the system beyond alpha stage and to the point that it was confidently able to kind of predict and make money and do risk management and what have you so just after the financial crisis wow. we knew we had something and that's then scaled ever since so now we have researchers adding to the models and the strategies that we've got we have developers finding new data sets and building new systems to scale stuff and to process it and to do things more quickly or do things more widely and that's just in effect it's kind of we sometimes talk about it as being a crystal ball for financial markets so yeah. we predict what prices are going to be which many people believe isn't possible but i think our track record shows that it is and the fact that there's now a a sort of fairly thriving market in quant hedge funds there's clearly some people who've figured out how to do it mm. um but you also need to be careful to be cautious because if you automate something you can automate mistakes as well and those can run away with you really rapidly so we have to be very careful on the, the risk management side and this thing we call algo safety which is a whole discipline internally of trying to make sure that we've got sort of checkpoints in the machine and, and ways to avoid runaway processes and and also there's a, a company called um Oh, what was it, Knight Capital, who had a very major kind of incident a few years ago where they had an old test system that automated trades into the market and they didn't know what was happening or how to stop it for about 45 minutes. And the company basically had to be sold, having lost over $100 million as, as, and through an algo safety incident. So it's that kind of stuff we have to be careful with. So there's sort of safety critical systems thinking has to come into this as well as just building software that can sort of look good or predict this sort of a price of something. Is this kind of system that you've got here to take the human completely out of the equation or is it a case of augmenting the human decision? Yeah, so th this is, I guess, the um, the way it works is fully algorithmic during the day. So there's still there's the company that we provide the service to. I guess it's a symbiotic relationship. There's there's one one sort of customer in the group and they're the hedge fund and we're mm -hmm. the technology arm and we, we're a separate company, but we basically provide all of their sort of systems and software and research. And what they do is they actually have a trading desk of humans who do make sure they look over the machine. Um, they make sure that if strange things are happening in the market or there's odd behaviors noticed, they will then override and, and stop it or pause it or try and investigate. But there's no human in the decision-making loop during the trading day. That's all baked into the, into the models and the maths. So um, it means because human traders tend to be um, quite emotional. There's a phrase, catching falling knives, where... Once you start losing, you kind of want to convince yourself that right now I've, I've figured it out. So you pile in, but it still goes down and it, and it, it cuts you even worse. So um, what, what we've done is automate um, a lot of the thinking and you can scale the, the processing. And with the advent of machine learning and data science in, in the last few years, it's become much harder for humans to do this fully on their own. You see so many companies now moving towards a quantitative approach to things, even if they still have humans in the loop. Whereas yeah. we fully automated the, the decision-making wow. process during the trading day. So you mentioned here, you kind of got uh, maths and statistics and uh, algorithms. Is there kind of machine learning or AI involved in this at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could talk to some of our research leads who would say, we've been doing a form of machine learning since we ever started doing this because the whole time has been maths of various sorts. What's mm. changed in the last few years is there's just more and more 
kind of libraries available for doing predictive analytics with with data sets now because of all the the open source libraries that have been made available from Google and Facebook and Uber and Salesforce and all these different people. So that's one of the technology changes we've had to make pretty rapidly the last few years is to move away from a it's all secret, nobody knows you can even do this, roll your own completely mindset mm -hmm. to looking and saying, well, hang on, there's no point trying to do this thing now for ourselves because there's libraries to do that. Everybody can use this thing. Everybody can do a simple um, regression or, or run a neural net over something. So mm -hmm. we therefore need to figure out how to adopt new things quickly and focus our engineers and our researchers on, on what is our edge. So sort of, I guess, push them up the stack, if you will, so yeah. that we focus less on, on building the, the kind of the underpinnings and the, the basic frameworks because those are available to everybody to use now. Yeah. Um, but it's not all it's not all machine learning by any means. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff that is still straight up statistics or um, looking at kind of different ways of managing risk and thinking about how you might break a portfolio up to look at the different ways it could go wrong. And that's not not really machine learning. But these days, it's really sort of the thing to do to stick an AI and ML sticker on everything and triple the valuation and get investors yes. money into things. But fundamentally, we we try and use the right tools for the job, depending yeah. what it is we're trying to solve. Brilliant. Yeah, that's that's and my mind's kind of going to uh how you kind of confirm this is working. I guess you you have kind of data sets of previous kind of stock market prices and then run mm -hmm. them in a kind of uh, back in time forward to make sure it, they are predicting as you're gonna go along. Is yeah. that something you I mean that's that's yeah, that's fundamentally what, what you do. You would as a researcher, you would look at a static historical data set, and you do this in, in most kind of of these kind of scientific disciplines now where you're trying to predict from data. But there's certain amounts of the data that you hold back you've not seen before and mm. only once you think you've got something that, that you believe might be predicting future prices do you show it the unseen data yes and you see well how does it perform now that you've gone it's called out of sample testing as a standard sort of discipline right. how does it perform once you see data you've never seen before and then if that looks good then you might get approval to um to put the strategy into the live system mm. and then you have to monitor things as, as they're actually live in in the market because like <laughs> As you always see on those kind of adverts for mortgages and investments, the future performance is not a sort of a guarantee of, or past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. And yeah. that's very much the same with our stuff. So we need to monitor things for our customer once they're live as well. You can't just sort of stick it out and just forget about it. The whole thing needs constant sort of oversight, I guess. So coming back to yourself then, Chris, you know, uh, what's, the, what's your passion? What makes you jump out of bed in the morning? My alarm clock. Um, <laughs> what time <laughs> yeah, yeah sometimes too early I, I, have, I go to the gym a fair bit there's a really nice gym down the road so if cool. I go there before work the alarm goes off at 5 25 which is uh, a bit on the early side but I think that the thing that makes me get up and go to work is the fact that I still find what we're doing really interesting I think that I guess as a tip for anybody would be if you really don't like what you're doing or what your company's doing it's pretty hard to enjoy that for very long and maybe you need to think about whether you really want to be doing it. Mm. it I mean, in tech, we are lucky. We have a lot of choice about where we could work, who we could work for, what problems we could be working on because it's kind of, I guess, a seller's market if you've got skills in, in technology. So therefore, sort of trying to figure out being somewhere where you really enjoy what you're doing is probably a good good idea. And, and I go into work and there's, like, you think you know what's going to happen and in some cases you do and you've got a scheduled meeting and, I have to prepare for that one. But then interspersed with that, it's just new problems that we're trying to solve or new technologies or, or some vendor tells us about some 
something new they're building and, and we think well hang on we could use that as a solution mm -hmm. to a problem we're seeing and this just goes down all these new alleyways so i think mm -hmm. that's what that's what excites me to get up and go to work every day fantastic and what's your kind of style as a leader now that you're in this kind of strategic position kind of over overseeing and, and seeing the holistic uh, kind of operations and and, and ways forward but yeah how do you roll uh i guess i guess people see me as relatively informal but relatively well informed i think i kind of um especially in the company i'm in because i've been there such a long time i kind of i have a fairly innate feeling for how things work and fit together and there's there's a lot of history that i've got um for for the company and, and why we did what we did and how, how things are put together but i know it's always changing we have so many hundreds of engineers now that it's kind of i'm always keen to learn and to, to hear from people about new stuff so i think that's kind of my approach is to try and um see the big picture but learn where things fit together in that big picture by talking to people on the ground in the team so um we're working on I mean, you can't talk to everybody as an individual person in an organization with five or 600 engineers. Um, but I try to make sure that I still have relationships with engineers in the team. So interested to talk to me and and, and happy to do that. So do some mentoring of, of ICs who've asked if I'll be their mentor. Mm -hmm. And that I find is a really good way to get some sense of not being too disconnected from yes. what's going on on the ground. It's always a risk and always a challenge. And you sometimes hear it in feedback that Management are disconnected from the rest of the company. And, <laughs> yeah. um, we try not to be, but I think it's a it's a just sort of a challenge with the role that you're always at some level going to come across as, as you don't quite know what's exactly going on. Sure, um, that's right. But we try and fix that. I like that kind of feedback that you create there, you know, from the people to kind of make sure that you know you have got your ear, some a little bit of your ear to the ground, you know, uh, and uh, and seeing what's happening at the coalface. And what's what's the thing that keeps you up at night then, as a, as a tech leader? Um, I get, we're working at significant scale now. So we've got, um, I mean, it's, we don't have 20,000 engineers or something. So there's, there's way bigger companies in terms of their people challenge, but our technolo technological estate is giant for the kind of size company that we are. Mm. So I guess I kind of worry about making sure that we're making the best of that resource that we have and the investments we've got there. Um, I worry about what we haven't seen. So kind of what, what might our competitors be innovating on or what, what might be about to happen in the world of tech that is going to be important to us, but that we, we've missed. So we definitely in around, I guess, 2014, 15, we were quite inwardly focused. We'd had a security um, incident that we were dealing with. We'd had like, we were always quite private anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And we missed a bunch of stuff going on in terms of the open source world in terms of the data plumbing that was being donated to the rest of the world by the hyperscalers. Um, and so I kind of, and then we'd also really missed the whole DevOps kind of movement really kicking off. And we then caught up and played catch up pretty well, I think, because we were well resourced and we were quite determined to kind of improve once we realized we'd missed out on these things. But I guess the thing that I worry about is what's the next thing that, that we're missing that, that should yeah. have been obvious if we were looking. Um, so I'm quite interested at the moment in, in things, what's happening as you will move to a world that's more data driven, mm. the artifacts that people work with are going to be more and more data sets. So like a few years ago, we always thought about everything we produced was a piece of software, whether it's a service or an API endpoint or a microservice. But actually now a lot of the teams, their output is not a piece of software, it's a data set that mm. somebody else might then consume, whether it's a, 
Um, it's the kind of data set that somebody uses then to try and predict something or whether it's a data set that helps you understand risks or that you use to do sort of portfolio reporting. So we're sort of thinking now, well, do we need to be looking at things like what's the equivalent of CICD for a data set? What's the equivalent of telemetry for data sets? So um, all these things that, that really help the DevOps world, they're going to have parallels in the, in the data-centric world. So let's look for them now. And there's a whole explosion in tooling now around data observability and ML ops and AI ops and all these things. So which of that is just fluff and hot air, yeah. and which is stuff that we should really get on, get on board with and, and use is the kind of stuff I, I guess I worry about now. Yeah. Is there any kind of learning? You kind of mentioned there, DevOps, you kind of, that, you, that kind of passed you by for a short while. Uh, any kind of learning or tips that you can share with our tech leader audience of how to maybe mitigate that? Yeah, I mean, I think we encourage now much more um, people to go outside the business and to go to conferences and to participate. And yeah. we, the part of the thing of us being so private is we didn't have anybody talking at a conference or um, we didn't arrange meetups. And I mean, that's that's been a bit harder during the COVID period, but we started doing things like, we've got a really nice ground floor space in our office in, in London, um, which is actually literally right now having a park built opposite it by the council, which is, which is great. And that'll be finished in November. But we started doing meetups for the local community in sort of tech groups in London. Mm. And that was great because you could, we've got a space that isn't being used at nighttime and you can start to kind of get into the, the local technology community. So we sort of started to try and just participate more, I think, really. And yeah. by doing that and encouraging and rewarding learning and people coming in with new ideas and doing asking them to do lunch and learn. So once you've been to a conference, you need to write some notes up on Confluence about it. You need to share that. You do a lunch and learn. Tell people what you've learned. Yeah. We, we do quite a lot of internal town halls now where we have these slots in them where I think in one meeting set, we call them a supercar slot, where somebody comes in and talks about some project they've done in their area or or something they've learned and, and goes from there. We also did, um, partly to counter the, the challenge where teams said, we don't know, I mean, even people internally to G Research sometimes say, I don't know what G Research does or what all <laughs> these other teams do. So we, we started, and we managed to do two of them before COVID. Um, to do internal trade shows so over a day nice. we just changed the office into an internal trade show and every team made it made a stall and I mean the creativity was incredible especially at the second one maybe we've done three actually because suddenly the teams it was almost like a competition and people had they built stands they had games they had <laughs> things it. where there was there were shots of whiskey where each whiskey was like given it had had the right name from some kind of strategy that we'd released and each one had been named after a special whiskey. So there was all these kind of fun things. And I think that just helps people to, to yeah. learn about what's going on. I think that's, that's a really good point. I remember working for a previous company that I won't mention the name of, but I re remember one of these, uh, um, these kind of internal trade shows. We were basically showing what we were doing. It turned out people across the road were doing exactly what we were doing. <laughs> and uh, it was a duplication of work, which was kind of a good, good kind of aha moment. But uh, I think it happens in organisations more than we'd like to kind of think. But yeah. I, I love this idea of having, uh, you know, people getting creative about presenting what they're doing. It kind of adds an emotion to it, you know, so that's great. Yeah. And no, I'd, uh, Well, I, also, I guess I also part of the, the role I have now is we've started running a small kind of central architecture function where we're trying to link over to the various parts of engineering and most of it feels to be about the connectivity between functions or groups who haven't realized that one another are working on similar problems so yeah. it's kind of if you have a vertically siloed engineering organization then having a small team of people who try and 
create the cross connects between people and, and make us sort of realize that actually there's a common thread here that three teams are all working on a very similar challenge. Maybe we should get organized around just one set of people doing it. And that feels like an important role for an architecture function like that is to sort of help connect the dots that otherwise wouldn't be connected. That's right. Yeah, I love that. It kind of orchestrating those connections and and kind of gluing different parts of the organisation. Um, coming on to your kind of teams, you know, you've obviously worked in software, you've worked your way up. You, uh, I imagine you've kind of project managed and stuff like that. What tips have you got for other tech leaders around there of uh, getting, um, you know, the best out of your teams, turning them into powerhouses of kind of productivity and delivering value? Oh, developer productivity, that old chestnut. Um, I think it's... <laughs> I think you've got to try to make sure that everybody's clear on what it is you're trying to achieve. Mm. Um, like what does I mean? In some cases, we have things where success is very easily measurable. So we have um, sort of you can actually run a simulation and say this thing, this change is going to make this much money for our customer. That's that's a really good one because you can literally point to a number that's in dollar dollar terms. Mm. It's much harder when you've got something less tangible. But I think you really need to try. Like one of the things. I've found this quite useful is to try, and this is where you almost start to become the marketing department rather than the technology department, try to think of a sort of a short phrase or a short description or something that people can remember and, and sort of kind of, I guess, just use to kind of help them understand. Because I think if you get too buzzwordy and too kind of business jargony, it just falls flat for people. So, I mean, we've we had a, a bunch of stuff we were looking at just recently with some stuff our HR function was trying to do. And they're, they're trying to really sort out some things to, to help engineering and to help get the right talent into the business. But the, the kind of the way to word it wasn't really clear. So we just ended up saying, well, maybe we just call that thing on the plan next year, right people, right place, right time. And things in threes often help. Or we, we kind yes. of, we were talking about the, the concept that we've got some fairly strict network policies and some things that just don't really kind of help people to, to get their work done quickly. So we just said, well, what we need to do is we need to be able to download it in the morning, use it in prod in the afternoon. And actually that simple phrase just stuck and two, three years later, it's been quoted back to me oh, wow. in Teams presentations and, and what have you. So I think just trying to be clear on a non-super jargony way of, of describing the outcome you're after, even if you can't put it in dollars, yeah. helps people then to, to, to sort of, I guess, gravitate around sort of a shared goal. And then we do lots of the kind of agile stuff that you'd expect now we have sessions where people go and do a workshop off-site they do whiteboards and stick post-its on things and yeah. try to sort of do we do some poker planning activities where one of the things you could put down is infinity like i have no <laughs> idea it sounds hard yeah. um, and that that's where then you realize actually we're, we're all like if you have a wide variety of guesstimates on a poker planning session you, you look at it and then, well clearly we're not very clear on what it is we're trying to do yeah, because absolutely. one person said that's a one the other one said that's a five that's a 13 and that's an infinity yeah. okay well that's clearly we need to do some work on definitions there yeah that's great i you, you remind me i used to love the uh, kind of poker planning sessions because i love that kind of discrepancy that gap was just so telling and in fact it used to kind of really build up the uh, the energy and discussions in the group kind of thing oh what's going on there kind of <laughs> that's thing. not an infinity <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly that's right. yeah uh, but yeah I, I, again these kind of tools they seem really simple but they're really quite powerful and and as you as you mentioned chris you know they're quite telling of the fact that something's missing there's something that hasn't been communicated quite right you know so chris coming on to the growth of companies and growing pain to companies what are the things that you learned around there? Because obviously you've been in a company that's been growing quite rapidly. 
Yeah, I guess there's there's a bunch of challenges there. We had we had a particular challenge where the sort of systems that we were building, because they're all part of essentially one big machine, we'd been building them for I guess since 2001, two till sort of the 2011, 12, 13, 14. So about maybe 12, 12, 13 years worth of of kind of growth. But what we'd never done is we hadn't killed anything off because everything we did kind of worked. So we just pushed things onto the these bigger and bigger monoliths so we definitely got growing pains where as you hired more engineers you kind of if somebody broke the build you weren't breaking it for five people you were breaking it for 50 or 75 people so the kind of the cost of that sort of technical debt that we hadn't paid down became almost insurmountable so um we had to do a load of work to kind of back away from that problem and to, and to sort of break the monoliths down and work on releasability and behavioral expectations of engineers around breaking the build and all that kind of stuff. So, so there's growing pains there. I think there's what do you do about management of teams. So we were very much a kind of promote from within culture. Um, but then you sometimes, like we talked about a little bit before, you end up making managers out of people who maybe don't even want to be managers or don't even really have the kind of the skill set to, to, to be successful doing that. So yeah. I think one of the growing pains we had was we probably didn't learn quickly enough how to hire in technical management from outside. You don't want to do that with everybody because you want to give people chance to grow within the company. But mm -hmm. we kind of probably got the, um, the the kind of the, the dial set a little bit wrong on that for a while. So we're working now to make sure there's clear career growth opportunities, but also that we're good at bringing in external knowledge and talent and and doing that, particularly into management and leadership positions. Because as you grow, you need you need people who've seen it in different places yes. and experienced different things because they bring valuable, I guess, kind of knowledge from the trenches and new ideas and new ways of doing stuff. Because otherwise, you get really ossified and stuck in your stuck yeah. in your ways. It's, it's kind of cross pollination. That's what I loved about being a contractor. About going from company to company, you can bring ideas, and uh, maybe you don't want to quite do it like that, etc., etc. You know, stories from other tribes, kind of thing, um, yeah. and um, engineering challenges. Because I imagine. This, you know, the stuff that you're working on, it's got to be fast, it thinks quick, it's got to scale as well, and, and, and there's lots of data. What engineering challenges do you face within G, G Research? Yeah, I mean, we kind of have a whole bunch of them, I imagine. There's, there's a lot of it is around um, cycle times, basically. So if you think about fundamentally what a, a quantitative researcher is trying to do, and they're one of our primary internal customers, is they have an idea they express that idea as, as some piece of software or an equation that they need to run. And then they need to run some kind of simulation or back test and get the answer back. One of the big engineering challenges we've got is, well, how do you manage that cycle time down so that it doesn't, if it takes you 12 hours or 20 hours to get an answer, you can basically only ask one question a day. Yeah. Whereas if you can get that down to a few hours or even a few minutes, the cycle time is, is reduced so that the kind of number of sort of I guess rolls of the dice that the, the researcher can have is so much more and so there's a there's a real sort of almost a step function that you get from bringing something from 10 hours down to seven because at 10 hours you're one question a day at seven you're two a day and so you can you can look at things like that so figuring out how to allow people to express themselves in in ways where they're asking a mathematical question that is probably leading edge science nobody's published anything on it because they've sort of taken academic papers and research and some of their own ideas and how they've expressed it and looking at the engineering behind that saying okay well how do we make that go faster or how do we make it less likely to break in production or how do we plumb it into the real-time system when your back test has worked how do we actually get that thing mm -hmm. that you've now done and, and wire it into a system we can run 
lights out and operate sort of without human intervention all the time. So data validation becomes really important. Um, sort of parallelization because we need to think how do you break break problems down and run them parallel and distributed computing is always hard. So yes. there's a there's a whole load of engineering challenges and I think that's probably why the engineers we have for the most part sort of would say they love working with G research because we have real problems to dig into. So Chris. Um, you mentioned there about some of the kind of engineering challenges reminds me of my electronic days and FPGAs and putting uh, kind of algorithms actually down onto the hardware. Is that something that you do as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a small part of, of what we do. I mean, we've got teams who are worrying about how fast you can make something in, in the extreme. And obviously, if you do that in, in algorithmic trading, then FPGAs are, are one way you do that. I mean, we use a lot of um, our challenges is more sort of on the training side. So it's during the research side, you need to be looking at a whole ton of what if scenarios. So it's, our scale out challenges tend to be there. As once we've done months worth of research running across decades worth of data, you run all these thousands of scenarios. When you're trading in live and, and the customer's using that, that system live, they only run one instance of it. So actually that's then more about coordinating and, and, and managing a whole bunch of processes running in different sites all around the world during the trading day. So that then becomes a kind of a distributed systems monitoring and, and management problem. But yeah, we, we use hardware algorithms in, in certain cases, but it's not kind of a core part okay. of our business. We'd rather be uh, be sort of figuring out what the answer is before time than having to respond to something that's already happened. Okay, that's great. So as we come towards the closing arc of the podcast and our time together, unfortunately, I've got some nice warm questions to ask you. What would you? What advice would you give to aspiring tech leaders out there, based on your journey and what and how you've travelled to where you are now? I guess try to be clear on what your motivation is for the the next step up the the, the ladder that you think you need to take. So don't just assume that because it looks like that's the next rung on the ladder that you have to take it. You need to try and understand what am I letting myself in for if I do that? Because team management of technical teams can be a sudden shock, I think, to people where they realize actually you're now worrying about backlogs and people doing their time tracking and they're going into planning meetings and um, what have you. And if you're ready for that, then that's the right thing to do. But you need to you need to sort of be clear. It's almost like the grass is greener effect. Try and just think, okay, we'll talk to people doing that job, talk to them about what they actually do, talk to them about what they enjoy about it, what they don't. Um, I think if you do want to go for, for any kind of promotion somewhere, try to do it based on thinking, why do I deserve that next role? It's not that you will always be 100% ready. I mean, the kind of, sometimes the best way to learn is you, you get some new challenge and you think, well, I'm kind of partly <laughs> ready for this, but I know I need to learn new stuff pretty quickly. Sure. But I think just to try and really understand kind of, what am I letting myself in for? Do I really think that I want that job? And then also to make sure that you, you kind of think, well, how can I justify to myself why I should have this? Don't be underconfident, but I think being being overly confident and just sets yourself up for a fall, especially in the kind of company I've used to been used to working, which is where technical people really do know their stuff, and you get sort of a lot of respect from people for not selling BS, basically. So, um, I guess my advice to, to tech leaders would always be to try and make sure that you're not the one selling the BS, because you get found out pretty quickly when plan meets reality. I yeah. think on that. Yeah. Cool. And are there any kind of books, TED Talks or events uh, that have kind of 
been defining moments in your journey that have really helped you along? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, I guess there's there's things that have helped me along. So I really, really like the the kind of the KubeCon conferences, um, which is all based around Kubernetes, but actually it's just so much of the open source world and, and how people are building and, and deploying sort of modern software at scale. But there's lots of sharing that goes on at those conferences. You can see them online or, or go and go and visit them. Um, and I guess that's sort of like when you're trying to think about how to, as I guess, as a CTO, sort of look at the bigger picture stuff rather than just a very given niche technology, then, then conferences like KubeCon and also QCon, I know they sound almost the same, but QCon, <laughs> the software development conference, has got some great practitioners at it. And, and that's been sort of good to go and just see what's going on in, in the broader world, especially if you're kind of um, feeling a little bit insular in, in the business that you're in. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a, a book that I read called Leading the Transformation, um, which I think it was uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but it reading that led me to kind of find a guy called Barry O'Reilly who's got some great talks, um, who kind of came and helped us actually as to kind of how to start on our DevOps journey and our transformation. So he really helped us, and he does a lot of consultancy and helping other other sort of senior technology leaders. So he was a good I guess a catalyst you might call it. Yeah. Um, for, for for what we later did. And then right now, I'm reading a fantastic book, and so you've asked me a good time for this. It's called A Thousand Brains. And wow. it's basically, it's kind of, it says this, this strap line is a new theory of intelligence. And it's by, by a guy called Jeff Hawkins, who started Palm Computing. You know the Palm Pilot handheld computers? Yeah. Yes. He started that company, built it into a pretty much a mega firm, and then sold it fundamentally because he wanted to do neuroscience research about how the brain works and he couldn't get funding. So he thought, well, I need to go make some money to do this and then <laughs> oh. I'll start a neuroscience lab. So he's writing this fantastic book about how the neocortex works and it's a theory for how it's actually a pretty simple kind of universal algorithm about learning mm. that our neocortex implements and that's the power behind so much wow. of what we do. And it's one of those few books that I've read where as you're reading it, you think, oh my God, that makes so much sense now. And so, yeah, it's not directly related to today's tech because in the end he's talking about how does, what might this have for the future of machine intelligence and where does AI go next? Um, but it's a fantastically interesting book. So yeah, A Thousand yeah. Brains by Jeff Hawkins. I'm going to add that to my list and I'm going to look at the conferences as well. And I love the, your kind of uh, mention of conferences, being able to see all the kind of new ideas in the room, you know, to have those conversations and to see what people, yeah. you know, see what the word is on the street and the kind of thing. So that's great. And I'm going to pretend now to be the tech genie. Okay. I'm going to offer you a tech wish for your tech leadership. What would you wish for Chris? What would I wish for? <laughs> um, to know which of the hundreds of things we're looking at now will be <laughs> the thing that actually makes the, the key difference for us in future. That would be awesome. That's great. Maybe you can kind of, reuse one of your algorithms that kind of do the uh, kind of predictions on your hedge funds but do a prediction on the kind of what you need to be doing going forward yeah. type thing. well uh, interestingly our, our innovation group is actually looking at a sort of a proposal like that that they are uh, a project they call textradamus where they're trying to look at sort of predicting based on stuff you can see which right. technologies might be the interesting ones to go and look at so you're not too far off with that Oh, brilliant. That's great. There you go. There you go. I'm not always uh, kind of off the mark. So as we come towards the full stop of, of the podcast, what's the final kind of key takeaway that you'd like to give the tech leader men and women out there? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I guess that we, we did this, um, it was one of these psychometric surveys a while ago as a leadership team where they kind of 
they try and measure your um, your natural sort of state. I think it was almost on one of these kind of color ranges, and then your um, assumed state when you're at work. And some people are very sort of natural, and the way they are in work is the way they actually genuinely are. And other people put on a persona at work. And I guess the my advice to people, if they can, is to try to find a role and a company where you can be as close to who you really are as you actually are, because it's really emotional and intellectually straining mm -hmm. to try to be somebody that you're not and try to kind of act in a way that isn't your natural being. So I'm quite relaxed at work. I'm quite informal, but I really care about us doing a good job and people doing a good job. And I think that makes it easier for me to figure out what I should actually be doing because I'm not spending as much energy pretending to be somebody else. So I guess, yeah, advice, if you can find something like that where you can genuinely sort of act as who you are and be, be genuine to who you are, I think it's going to mean you have an easier job and you'll probably get on better and get further in your career. Brilliant. What a great note to finish off. Thank you very much, Chris, for your time. It's been great having you on board, sir. Thank you. Well, 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 we got to see under the covers of yet another industry creating a system that makes unemotional trades following rational rules, statistics and algorithms with a sprinkle of AI and ML by the sounds of it wherever it's needed, if it's needed. So what were your key takeaways? These were mine. Number one, I love the idea of internal trade shows, being able to share the work you do and maybe even sparking organisational insights for synergy and even doubling up to prevent duplicated work. It all sounds like a whole lot of fun. My second key takeaway is about making sure that you have an ear to the ground around trending changes in the market. I think in this day and age where everything's moving so fast, things can get missed very quickly. With all that's going on and the constant noise of change, things are gonna get missed. Sending staff to conferences, for example, and tapping into networks to see what's new on the street really serves the people well and the organisation. And then getting those people to do presentations on what they discovered. I think this is a great feedback loop to the organisation as a whole and in particular to the leaders. My third and final key takeaway is something that Chris mentioned that was really close to my heart, i.e. being authentic, being who you are at work, not expending energy on creating a thick or thick enough veneer to fit into what other people think you need to be. And that requires a company to be more open to diversity of thinking and ways of being as well, of course. I recall working in companies where I felt like a square peg being bashed through a round hole. And to some extent, I was the one that was doing the hammering. So thank you, Chris. Thank you for your time. It was great seeing you shine a light into this trading industry and the great work that you do. I would love to see your systems and algorithms at play doing the trading and seeing how that kind of plays out. I must be fascinating to sit back and watch a system predict what's going to happen in the future. That must be a wonderful thing to see. So thank you, Chris. Thank you for your time and well done to G Research and all your teams on the great innovative work that you do. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf 
with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.